Welcome to the Backyard Professor Live Show. On a very special Saturday night, I have a wonderful guest, the classicist and biblical scholar, Dr. Dennis R. McDonald, to share with us his wisdom of the Greek epic literature and the incredible stories of the Gospels in the New Testament. You won't want to miss this one. So let's get this show on the road and get started here. Okay, you guys, this uh, yesterday, it snowed like crazy, and I had to shovel and plow snow, and I caught a cold, and it's a bad one, so forgive me if I'm like Snuffleupagus. I will try to cover my mouth if I have to cough or sneeze, so as not to interrupt Dr. Dennis McDonald. Let's see. Dr. Dennis McDonald, come on up. How are you doing tonight, Dennis? Hi, Gary. I'm, I'm doing better than you are, apparently. Yeah, I'm I I don't feel achy, but my nose is just running like crazy and it's sore and I look like Rudolph, so it'll be an interesting night. I'm I'm going to block me out and let you take over. <laughs> I hope not. No, I'm just kidding. Uh what an opportunity to uh have you here on the show. Um thank you for coming on my show. I have been reading your work for several years. And the more I found, the more I really enjoyed. And uh, what? let me just, I know some in the audience really are familiar with you. Some of them aren't. The Gospels and Homer. What Dr. McDonald does is he describes the Homeric epics. And he describes the, actually, it's, it's all the Greek classic literature, isn't it, Dennis? Pretty much more or less Plato and Virgil and all of them. Um, well, there's some Plato. Most of it's uh, poetry. The uh, early Christian authors were most interested in the Homeric epics because of Virgil's Aeneid and imitations of uh, Homer there that helps sustain the image of the Roman Empire as uh, the better than but a uh, heir of the Greeks. But Athenian poetry, especially uh, Euripides, to some extent Aeschylus and Sophocles, there are places in the Acts of the Apostles where you have imitations of uh, uh, Plato and probably also in the Gospel of Luke. Um, yeah. So um, it, it's not it's not exhaustive of Greek literature. Absolutely couldn't be. It's selective of the things that the ancients already considered to be classics 
that gave identity to being Greek in the Roman Empire. And Christians needed to find a similar literary vehicle for establishing their identity, not only against Judaism, but also against the, uh, the Roman Empire and, uh, and the Greeks writing in the empire, like the second sophistic, which is a, a marvelous uh, a literary movement. So um, what these early Christians are doing is not sinister. It's not myth-making in the way we would think. It's not stupid. It's not simply pirating stories from the Greeks and um, retelling them. And it's not plagiarism. It's what the Greeks called mimesis, that is literary imitation. And it's both respectful and transformative. So it, it respects the model, but it transforms it in order to give different values. Students of rhetoric also were taught the principle of synchrosis. Synchrosis is simply a comparison of two characters to show that one character is better than another. And this is useful in law courts to show that your client has more virtues than the opponent, the accuser, or the other way around. Yeah. And uh, this is what these authors are doing. And I want to say right from the stop, if, start, if I can, Carrie. Absolutely. This, this should not be a threat to scholars. And it should not be a threat to Christian believers of various types. And it should be welcomed not only by them, but by the interreligious discourse generally. That is... Here we have human beings that are attempting to craft literature and mythology that articulates their core values, especially who is their prototypical leader, yeah. what does their community stand for, and who are they arguing against, who are they not. And that's the way all religions work. So in Mormonism, which you're familiar with, you have um, not just um, um, the, the Mormon patriarchs, but you also have literature that gives an articulation of the core values of, of the, the movement. And there are also places where um, the Mormon text distinguish itself from others and to say, yeah. you know, we are not like this, we are not like that. And the identity of groups is largely shaped by who the group is not, who they are opposing. And that's, that's what's going on in much of Mimesis. We are not like Jews. We are not like Greeks. We have a Jewish teacher who is, has become our epic hero. And yeah. in order to articulate that, we're going to tell you stories or mythi, that is, myths, about um, about Jesus that portray him as superior to Moses and David, but also to Achilles and Hector and and um, and so on. Yeah, so um, newest book of yours, I really well, I, I say newest to me. I really loved how you brought that out. Is that this is what it appears that the gospel authors were rejecting 
was the uh, a lot of the negative, the murderous, the hate-filled. That's right. Gluttony, and they elevated Jesus to a greater spirituality, not as a way of downplaying the Greeks, but of showing, look, a greater one has come. That's and exactly right. Yeah. And the Q document does it with uh, Jesus and John the Baptist and Jesus and Moses and so on. So the, but I guess what I want to make sure that we know from the outset, that even though I'm an atheist, and I'd rather call myself a humanist and a theoskeptic. Oh, yeah. Um, I like that. Uh, yeah. So the, uh, there I have it. I'm not against religion. I'm against stupidity. <laughs> I'm uh, right. So um, I very much appreciated your introduction of uh, the joy of learning. And you had philosophy, you had science, you had uh, religion, and so on. The what we're struggling for is meaning as human beings. And that's what the gospel authors were doing. They were not receiving revelations from the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much. They were finding revelations from the community identity that they're trying to solve. And they found inspiration from the Greek muses who produced this wonderful poetry that had permeated the ancient world, including its education. And yeah. now they're trying to, to say to their readers, um, yes, you esteem Hector. Jesus' death, for example, is even more magnificent. Yeah, um, I, I love how you brought that out with, well, with just hundreds, if not thousands, of different of the scenes uh, through your course of 12 or 13 books, uh, which brings me, I'm not trying to interrupt your trend of thought. I apologize if I did. However, we have some exciting news. Would you like to break it or should I about what's going to happen before this Christmas for the audience to have a good Christmas present? On Monday, my staff and I are submitting a manuscript called Synopses of Epic tragedy and the gospels that will be a summary of my work in uh, 570 pages with color illustrations for under $50. And it um, then gives cross-references to my earlier work. Um, everybody, some of my books, unfortunately, cost nearly $100. This way, you can get, uh, th this way you can get a distillation of them. Yeah. And it's intended to be a comprehensive synopsis in English of all the Gospels and much of the Acts of the Apostles that emphasizes the, their dependence on classical Greek literature. Now, one of the things that I'm really quite proud of in my lifetime is that I studied with wonderful classicists at Harvard and um, am capable in Greek and Latin in a way that I think is unusual in the field. And that sounds terribly arrogant, and I suppose it is. But um, I'm, able to, uh, I'm able to manage these texts and to provide new translations of them that are congenial to an understanding of how early Christians used them. 
Um, and it is my legacy. And uh, uh, I'm told that these things can be uh, available. These books can be available by the end of the year, uh, perhaps okay. even by Christmas. So, um, you know, they're way too big to fit into a stocking. But um, oh, forget they're, the stocking. They're, just put it on the couch. <laughs> yeah, well, they'll, they'll fit in most people's budget. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say something that I know I'll regret, but I'm, I think my goal in writing this was to make it the most important book ever written on the gospels yeah. because it's groundbreaking. Yeah, it yeah. allows us not to move the same gospel pieces of the puzzle around and try to reassemble them in and make sense of the, the uh, synoptic problem. Yeah. It understands them in a much larger landscape. If I could keep with the image, it provides so many more puzzle pieces than yes, we've seen in the past. Yeah, and the, the picture, the picture is still negotiable. It is still sure. flexible. Right. But we have more pieces on the table to play with. Yes. And, um, and, and that's why pieces. They're well, you're so kind. Yeah, I, I've been gratified by. No, I've been gratified by your reception and others, but they're all. <laughs> there are also are a lot of skeptics, but I want yeah. to reassure them that I'm not trying to uh, rain on anyone's parade. I'm trying to make that parade more fun. Mm -hmm. Nice, and and quite frankly, um, now I have discovered. Uh, some of your parallels we have and and if we get to that slide we'll look at it but we have uh you have discovered seven basic criteria that you have utilized through the years to determine whether something is utilizing one of the ancient greek sources or not and and so it's not that you're approaching this willy-nilly and oh well that sounds nice and good I like that one, but I don't like that one. No, you've tried to match the different types of criteria to the passages in the Gospels as well as to the Greek classical materials. Some of your parallels have like five of those criteria, which is just overwhelming. And I noticed that with your with your construction, I'll call it construction, maybe not quite the right word, sorry, but with your construction of the parallel with the death of Jesus. And there are just so many episodes to that that I've I've read the gospels, Dennis, several times as a Mormon and all, but the the context with contrast and comparison of the Greeks with the Gospels help me recognize there's some complication involved here. There is some real depth. There's a lot more going on than I realized. And putting it against the classics helped me appreciate the Gospels better. It helped me appreciate the classics better. And I know this is crazy because, you know, I used to be a Mormon apologist. I went the way of atheism for a few years. Yeah, I don't quite see it that way 
so hardcore like I did. So I like to say I'm, I'm probably a seeker. There's got to be something more, I'm hoping. But the enjoyment without worrying about whether it's true or not, or proving this particular Mormon interpretation is better than your Jewish and your Christian interpretation. Therefore, we're more right. Forget okay, all that, okay. Just enjoy the literature. I love this about your stuff. Well, the, the issue ought not to be for us, is it true? Exactly, right. Okay. It ought to be, is it beautifully and morally compelling? I love that. So what what these authors are doing is they're not recording historical fact, and they know that. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is to try to portray in the Gospels Jesus as a hero whose values and commitments and sacrifices are to be emulated, and, and they're morally beautiful. Now, are, could they be, in fact, more morally beautiful? Absolutely, sure. they could. But um, I consider myself not a theologian, but I do think these texts need to be evaluated by what I call ethical pragmatism. That is, what do they do for the poor? What do they do for the marginally, um, uh, uh, the margins of society? What do they do for the environment? And this is something the biblical tradition is very bad at, that is the environment. They didn't have to deal with these issues the same way we do. And so we need to have continuing mythologies. But I'm not interested in raining on anyone's parade. I'm just making the parade more interesting. And I don't see you doing that either, Dennis. I I never once got the idea that, oh, well, he's just trying to uh, decimate someone's faith because he has had a bad experience with someone in that faith or whatever, or he, he doesn't like this group of people or that. I didn't get any of that. What I see in your books, really seriously, that that it helped me just go through the same way. You really had fun doing this, didn't you? It was one eureka after another. And in fact, in your introduction to this series, you gave evidence that these discoveries are thrilling for you. And what we need to do is to have more thrilling discoveries, eureka moments, and ones that uh, sustain us. And uh, uh, put it in a different way. I think we have to understand ethics in terms of aesthetics and not in terms of truth. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it it beautiful? Fighting. Yeah, very good. Is it beautiful? And that goes all the way back to Socrates and his understanding of takolos. What is good is also beautiful. It's It's the morally good. It's the one that captures our imagination for doing justice. Mm-hmm. Let me, uh, I want to, just for kicks and giggles, yeah, this one, this one is, I, I can't help it, I like this one. Sorry, Tom, I'm going to take your comment down. I feel bad about this, but I'll get over it. Okay, so 
here's what you put in the uh, preface of your wonderful book on Homer and Mark. Uh, Mark's most memorable characters, the Gerasene demoniac, the Syrophoenician woman, blind Bartimaeus, the woman who anointed Jesus, the naked youth, Judas Iscariot, Barabbas, Mary Magdalene, Joseph of Arimathea, all of these emulate and imitate Homeric epic. Mark's account of Jesus's death resembles the violent death and burial of Hector, whose God had abandoned him. Mark consistently mimicked the epic stories while presenting Jesus as superior to the likes of Achilles and Hector and Odysseus. And one thing when I, now I have never, I've got my bachelor's in history uh, years ago, <laughs> decades ago now. I, I never, I wasn't able to pursue much after that. I had life caught up to me, but in the process, um, I, I began to try to catch up on my understanding of the classical literature. And I mean, we can, we can truly be just blunt and honest somewhat uh, sometimes these epics are just brutal, and it kind so of, is the Hebrew. So is the Hebrew Bible, by the way. And so is the Bible. Isn't that fascinating? Truly. Yeah. And so their their life was different than ours, and so they they might have. We are getting so used to using euphemisms in our society that we don't get the shock and the blunt force trauma, so to speak, of, of actual life situations like they did in the classics. And, and the Gospels, it seems to me, like attempt to not, not get rid of it or hide it, but to show, yes, it's brutal, but yes, there is a basis for morality, for beauty anyway, just like you've been saying. I, I like that aspect of your research with all of the various types of literatures. It's been so fun rereading Euripides, the Dionysian, and the uh, the Virgil. I, I haven't finished Virgil yet, but I'm trying to get back through Homer also because of your material, and it's, it's fantastic stuff. No, it's thank you so not much. what our generation, me, well, maybe the one below me. I mean, they... Uh, Trevor Luke, our mutual friend Trevor Luke, he complained to me once on the phone. He said, they're not even requiring you to read the Greek classics at college anymore. I'm going, I would kill to go back and take those Greek classics yeah, instead right. of the art classes I took. But, so, yeah, fun stuff. So, that, here, that, that, Let me put it in a different context. Sure, absolutely. Literary critics talk about a mundic significance or the plural um, mundi significanti, contus. Mm -hmm. That is, what are the um, um, worlds of signification that readers bring to a text? Now, in, mod in the modern world, we have a different mundus significans, a different world of significating, because we're writing after the Enlightenment. We're writing in after a Cold War or in the middle of a Cold War now. We have capitalism uh, ready to de devour the world and so on. So um, the ancients had a very different mundus significance. And one of the things we need to do when we read ancient texts 
is to put ourselves in the context of what was the world that was signifying for them. We're overhearing a text. We're not reading it for our own sake. It was not written for us. It was written for a different context. And um, that's one of the great tragedies of having lost classics in um, e even in in English PhD um, programs, you don't have to um, read Homer, you don't have to read Aeneas, but you do have to know archaeology and inscriptions and um, the things like that, the social uh, con constructions and uh, in history. Mm -hmm. But for the ancients, they Homer was, as Hegel put it, Homer was the oxygen that Greeks breathed. Oh. We don't have we don't have that oxygen, so we can't understand the nurture that they get from um, from breathing that that world. I think you have a somebody asking a question. Do you? Let's see. The Old Testament is brutality on roids. Uh, okay, if your interpretation of the story's myths lead you to violence or supremacy, toss it or rethink it. That's actually what the Gospels were doing with the uh, epic somewhat, weren't they? They were trying to get rid of more of the brutality and uh, go with the the more... Well, let me give you an example that, that you already talked about. The Gerasene demoniac. Odysseus goes, he blinds Polyphemus, he steals his sheep, and he says, you know, um, look what I've done to you. Jesus has a garrison demoniac. He restores him to um, health. Um, he does drown the the uh, cattle, the the the, uh, the pigs in the ocean, but right. that probably is a, a symbolic of the milit Roman military. And uh, he goes and says, "Look what the Lord has done for you." In other words, uh, I've healed you. Uh, I've restored you to human society. And so that's a very good example of um, rewriting a Homeric story and to make it more compassionate. By the way, Virgil rewrites that story in the Aeneid to make Aeneas more compassionate than Odysseus. So this is in the wind. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Virgil actually was one of the great uh, users of mimesis from the Homeric materials, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what his project was in the Aeneid. Uh, hold on, don't, oh yeah, don't forget to hit like button. We have uh, a world-class Bible scholar. You can start asking questions anytime you guys want to also. Let me jump on this next slide. I made these slides. Um, this one I, and this is kind of a general overview of what Mimesis is doing, what they were doing in all of the ancient literatures as they were copying other literatures when they, Copied ancient authors, the disguises were altering the vocabulary, varying the order, the length, and structure of sentences. They were improving the content. And on all of these, Dr. McDonald shows us time and again in the stories in all the Gospels how this occurs. And he shows us the details in the column-by-column -column comparison and generating a series of formal transformations. And that's what it was uh, 
Oh, Trevor's here now too. Sorry, I'm late. That's okay. You're going to be beat with 50 wet noodle lashes, Trevor. <laughs> uh, so, so the idea here, and, and this is one I wanted to show because uh, Mark, Mark's story on Jesus, of course, the Mark ending, uh, we have a shorter ending and a longer ending. And that is somewhat controversial. Bart Ehrman goes into that quite a bit. And uh, while it is true, many stories in the New Testament are taken from the ancient Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, Brody, Dr. Brody has demonstrated, as you're familiar with, and uh, a little bit of uh, Dale Allison Jr. too, on the intertextuality of Jesus, that many of Jesus's uh, experiences in the Gospels come from the Elijah Elisha cycle, and and that's where it it's not being denied in your research. Your no, right. focus is imitate. Your focus is on the Greek epics. It's not an either or necessarily. It is a both and. And this again, when I first read, when I first discovered you through Richard Carrier's book. Uh, and I immediately went and, and the first one I bought, and perhaps it's just this one. This is still my favorite book of yours, Dennis, because yeah. it was the first one. It was the first one I read, and every page was just a smorgasbord for me. I, I I realized, wow, I know what extra sources these guys. Okay, let me let 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 me butt in a little bit, Carrie. Absolutely, bring it on. <laughs> we know that the Gospels present Jesus, and I want you to think about this phrase. Okay. Jesus is contesting the canonical past of Jews. Oh. So that he's re-evaluating um, the legislation in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He heals on the Sabbath. He allows uh, gleaning on the Sabbath. He, in my view, uh, in the Q document, does not allow uh, the elders to uh, stone a woman who's unrepentant, uh, even though it's commanded. And so there's a contestation of the canonical Jewish past. What happens in Mimesis of Greek poetry is it's a contestation of the canonical Greek past because the Homeric epics have had such a stature in education and in culture and in the definition of what it meant to be Greek mm -hmm. that to engage the Homeric epics was to contest a canonical Greek past. And that's what Virgil does in the Aeneid. He contests the canonical past of the Greeks, which is namely the Homeric epics and other Greek poetry. So you also have imitations of Homeric hymns and, uh, and uh, Euripides in particular. So um, I think it's important to under, and this is, by the way, the Greeks would understand this as cultural synchrosis. It's a comparison of my group to another group and say that our group, the other group has virtues, our group is better. Our leader is better. So Mormons, um, Mormons would not understand that at all. <laughs> uh, no, I bet they would. Actually, I bet they would. But uh, the the so that it's we do know that gospel authors contested 
the Jewish can, uh, canonical past with uh, Moses and David and Elijah and Elisha, uh, most obviously. But they, why shouldn't we think they also contested the canonical past of the Greeks? Why should that come as a shock to us and a threat? Um, they're, they're, they're doing the same thing. So, um, oh, here's a great question. Uh, Dr. Yeah, McDonald, what's the most striking difference between you and Bart Ehrman? First of all, I consider Bart a very bright and important scholar. And um, both of us kind of cut our teeth on um, uh, textual criticism. And actually, we both studied with the same person at Princeton for a while. So um, I consider him to be a, a very important uh, scholar. And the thing that I admire most about Bart is how articulate he is in um, social media, much more articulate than I am, I fear. And so um, he can explain many, many things uh, beautifully. I also think he has much more breadth than I do. Um, that is, he not only does textual criticism in Gospels, but he's interested in Paul, he's interested in a Christian Apocrypha, he's interested in, um, as an atheist, in poo-pooing, um, you know, miracles and so on. But I once told him that I cannot use his introduction to the New Testament because he is entirely tone deaf to mimesis and the Greek influence. And so uh, I would use his introduction for Paul. I would use his introduction for the Johannine epistles, the apocalypse, and for the, the foundation, the, the coming of. But I have to substitute my work for everything he says about the Gospels and Acts, including the Gospel of John. And he did not like my comment. Uh, he was um, <laughs> uh, he was unhappy about that. Uh -oh. So just as an answer to the question, of course, Bart could be right and I could be wrong. Sure. And the chances of that are really quite remote uh, or, or thin, in my view, that I think um, he has chosen to be a spokesperson inside of the New Testament guild and to um, perhaps wait to see what McDonald can do with uh, classical Greek poetry. But I really do hope he rewrites his introduction, which in other, in other respects is really quite important. So, yeah. um, so Thank you. there you have the difference. Yeah, Bart Ehrman is one of those who uh, just sincerely, uh, when I was a Mormon apologist, um, I, I I told everybody, I am going to be the best I can. And, and I mean it. I'm going to read everybody, everything, every subject, broad and deep. And I did. And when I got to the biblical scholarship, uh, that was a shelf breaker for me. For, for being a oh. Mormon apologist and Bart Ehrman's text, the, the misquoting Jesus. And, and I get it. He's a popularizer somewhat. But I also purchased his scholarly materials for a Mormon apologist who for lack of a better way to put this is forced to come to a conclusion that the church leaders insist you come to. And if you can't come to that conclusion, then quit using the evidence you're using and come and read our stuff, so to speak. 
smart airman was a breath of fresh air for me. And again, you as well. You and Richard Carrier, I got Richard's book, and that just, I, I vibrated for a whole summer after reading that book, and then I started reading your material, so yeah, it's fun. Um, here, here is, oh, here's a nice, JC has given us a nice compliment, I'm expanding guests fathers <coughs> of Christianity and ancient history, like Dennis, thank you, JC. Uh, you didn't, you didn't miss. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, you misspelled Dr. McDonald's name. That's 50 lashes with the wet noodle. Okay, so let's see what else. Uh, you, you guys are welcome to ask Dr. McDonald questions because this is your opportunity to get it from a seriously well read biblical and classical scholar. Just truly. Oh, here we go on the Egyptians, the influence of the Egyptians, too. Such a fluid and creative time of history. I was so uneducated till recently. Well, we all are. That's why we keep, that's why I want to keep bringing on scholars such as Richard Carrier and Dennis McDonald. And, and I'm going to have uh, Dr. Charles Harrell on. And I would like to get Bart Ehrman here. I know he is a very busy man, um, but uh, Dennis and I have have already agreed. We're going to do several sessions together on this particular subject through next year. There's a lot of fun. I'm going to be reviewing his new book when it comes out. For those of you who just showed up, Dr. McDonald's book is going to be published, actually in print available, hopefully if Amazon's not pulling our legs before Christmas, which is my stocking stuffer. And if I have to, I'm going to cut my stocking and have to get that book in it because <laughs> forget the stocking. I want the book. Okay. So uh, Geoplanet Jane, one of, one of my very nice and wonderful supporters in the audience. I think that is the reason that so many ex-Mormons end up as atheists without any adherence whatsoever to God or Jesus. You are correct. Um, I'm, I'm, I was one of them. So, and then here is a comment. I like Richard Carrier and many scholarly atheists till their science becomes more dogmatic than Mormonism. Oh, Hey, uh, Dr. McDonald, that might be interesting to, uh, to address, because if anything I've noticed in your materials, you are not insisting. Now, granted, and and he, you have to understand, this stack of books that Dennis has written. I just dropped you on your head, Dennis. Sorry, it's it's a foot high. There's thousands and thousands of pages, thousands of parallels. Not all of them are the same strength. Not all of are the same depth or extended influence from the epics, uh, whichever one he finds the parallels. And he's nowhere dogmatic saying, well, we have to accept this now or else we're not doing proper scholarship or anything like that. So it is important to recognize that in the process of breaking new ground, scholars, you know, when you first put that plow in the ground as a farmer, you want to hit it. You want to go and start that groove really hard. But uh, I don't see any dogmatism in your material either, Dennis. And and that is what else is so fun. I see you exploring. You're learning while you're writing this stuff, aren't you? Because some of your materials in your mythologizing Jesus was actually uh, an add-on, an extension, I should say, of some of your earlier stuff. And when I went back and compared it, I said, Oh, he added something else that he found. I love this kind of stuff. So anyway, 
Okay, uh, I, I just want to respond to that. In my view, the interpretation of ancient texts, including biblical texts, mm-hmm. is a combination of science and art. And so on the one hand, we need to know the ancient languages. We need to know how to reconstruct texts with sexual criticism. And by the way, I think the reconstruction of Q is absolutely solid. That there was a Q document and it's the, the philology of it is the kind of thing that classicists are used to doing all the time. So, so the, the skepticism about Q is done by really people who have a very little classical education and understanding of how texts get put together. So uh, that's an aside. But uh, so that there's a science and an important methodology to um, biblical scholarship, but there's also an art. There's also an evaluation that happens. And I think one of the tragedies of biblical scholarship in the past is it's become what Germans called Wissenschaft. It's become a science and it's not an art. And um, so, yes, uh, I cannot be dogmatic because I change myself, my, my mind frequently, yes. but I do so on the basis of new information. And so sign. that the intellectual project is one of a, a, um, a pilgrimage. It's not one of um, dogmatism. And one of the things that's unfortunate, I think, about so many um, atheists is that they, and I would say not me, but they uh, become fundamentalists in the world. And they can't understand uh, diversity and don't know how to read texts with uh, compassion and creativity. So um, I want to appeal to Homer here. When Homer and and Hesiod and others um, start writing, they invoke a muse where we get our word music where we get our word museum. That is, they're evoking inspiration. Inspiration is not a scientific um, (laughs) phenomenon. It has to do with art. It has to do with emotion. It has to do with ethics. It has to do with social identification. And I think the idea of turning biblical scholarship into a Wissenschaft into a science is only part of the story. It could lose some of its depth then probably, huh? And important. Why are these texts compelling to people? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Here's a good question. Um, And now Patricia, or Patty Cake, one of you, you asked which book of Dennis's you should start reading. Um, And and I'm not... uh, I, I think all of them are excellent. I, I would get his new one when it comes out, but yeah, that's right. It, this one is a very that's excellent summary of several of the earlier ones. Yeah, and I see Dennis agreeing. And it, it's not large. You can read it in a pleasant weekend. Uh, and it's right cheap. Now. Actually, I wrote it for my grandchildren. Oh, so, oh, it's, uh, awesome. oh it's wonderful. I'm not kidding. This one, and, and it's it's awesome. It's a good overview. 
but truly, if you're if you're looking for more in depth, for those of you, which is pretty much my whole audience, who are more on the scholarly end, still, and I know I'm biased, I I admit it, but seriously, this book is breathtaking, yeah, and it's big. Important. It's almost 375, 80 pages, and lots and lots and lots of excellent details and parallels, including when Greek phrases match the excellence of the reason why they chose the names of their characters, both in yeah. the epics and in the gospels, etc. This one just about has it all. I love this. Yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's a, hopefully true. that's a help for you. But, uh, and, and then uh, this is a very important one. Thank you, JC, for asking this question, Dr. McDonald. What would you recommend? It depends on what you're after, JC. If you're after the enjoyment of reading Greek literature, um, and then I'm going to start with Homer, the uh, Robert Fagel's translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey are really quite wonderful in their energy. If you're interested in comparing the, the Greek text and the Latin text in a, in a somewhat wooden way, the Loeb Classical Library is, is superb. And there are two volumes for the Iliad and two for the Odyssey. But I think your question is um, a somewhat broader. And if I wanted to give you a modest reading list not of publishers and translators, but of the original authors, the ones that I would have you read would be the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, um, Euripides' Bacchae, um, Plato's Republic, and um, th that would get you really quite far into understanding Greek literature. One of the things that's a problem with your question, JC, and it's a great question, is that Greek literature, we are so proud to say, is vast and complex. And one can spend three lifetimes exploring Greek literature without asking what Jews and Christians did with it. So it really is, in my view, uh, a literary and aesthetic um, uh, amusement park. And go ahead and buy these things and explore and imagine and um, and play around with them. Yes, there's a science to it, but yes, there's also an art to it. And you bring the art to it, JC. So uh, I think that's a good place to start. Now, I do want to say something about the, uh, the, the book on the Gospels and Homer. I have organized it in such a way that you get int introduced to the Iliad and the Odyssey as you read it with yes. my translations. So it is actually a way of starting with Greek literature in those passages that became so classic in Greek understanding and Christian um, reevaluation. Usage, yeah. 
yeah, you actually have a two throwing press there. Your thrust, you're you're not only, yeah, you're not only showing the usage of the Greek by the Greeks, but you're showing the usage of the Greeks by the uh, the gospel authors in that one also. Uh, here is, thank you, JC. That is a wonderful question. Yeah, here very is good. To share. Also, oh, well, JC, again, our, our friend JC, has Dr. McDonald engaged with Dr. Marcus Vincent and his ideas? How does Marcion fit in with your perspective? Before I let Dennis take over, let me just say something I learned about him just the other day, watching him and his wonderful discussion with my dear friend and bro, Derek Lambert, yeah, of Myth Vision. He's had Dennis on several times. Uh, I have had that Jason D. Badoon, and this is his his idea of the first New Testament with Marcion, uh, that this gentleman is really a decent and good and well-read New Testament scholar. I discovered that he is a student of Dennis's. He is a graduate student of Dennis's. Dennis helped produce this fabulous guy. So now, Dennis, take it away on Marcion. Actually, I'm going to be um, on a video debate with Marcus Vincent in a week or two. Um, so I'm already thinking about what this means. Now, uh, one of the tricks in scholarship is not to unman an appointment, but to identify the differences. And so I'm not interested in shaming anyone, um, but I do feel very strongly that Marcus Vincent's ideas um, have no ultimate intellectual value. Now that sounds particularly harsh. Let me explain it. The discovery of Marcion's gospel and its reconstruction, not just by Jason Badoon, but a similar one by um, uh, Dieter Roth um, is a very important discovery. There's no doubt about that. It's an alternative and uh, tendentious uh, reconstruction of the Gospel of Luke that um, merits very serious discussion. And um, Dieter wrote and Jason Badoon and Matthias, um, um, I forget his last name, um, uh, have done a wonderful job in working with it. The question is, is Marcion's gospel earlier than the canonical gospel of Luke, or is it a truncation of it to serve the interests not just of Marcion, but of others who are suspicious about the connection between Jesus and the Jewish God. So that's a part of Marcion's um, project. That's a, that's a big but he may, he may have received it um, already with the purging of biblical illusions, such as there's no infancy narrative, which is so important in Luke in establishing um, uh, you know, Jesus' uh, paternity in Judaism and in the Bible. Now, this is the most important piece of the puzzle for me. If one grants that the Lucan gospel, 
imitates and, and reproduces the Gospel of Mark, which already has Homeric imitation. And if Luke extends that Homeric imitation in his Gospel in the Acts of the Apostles, when one compares the Marcion Gospel with the canonical Gospel, those parallels disappear. Why is that? So if you have Marcion's gospel with echoes of these stories and then the canonical gospel making it more explicit, you have actually two moments of mimesis. You have one for the Marcion gospel and you have another for the, um, uh, for the canonical gospel. Now that is, in my view, really quite impossible. That's why I think there are two keys to solving the synoptic problem. Neither of them is directly related to the Marcion gospel. And Badun's attitude is that the Marcion's gospel replaces Q and it's actually the earliest gospel. From my perspective, which is of course subjective, that's an impossible um, conclusion. That uh, Marcion's gospel is a radical truncation of the Gospel of Luke. It does not know the Acts of the Apostles. It, in fact, ex apparently excludes it. And the, the Acts of the Apostles, where we have all kinds of these Homeric imitations. So what Vincent would have to show me is that there's the plausibility of having two stages of Homeric imitations of the same story, where on the one hand, um, the, the the Marcion gospel imitates it, and then the canonical gospel imitates it again and expands it without any uh, plausibility for that. So uh, that's the biggest problem. Now, there are other problems with it, too. And um, th that is, and this gets very, very deep into the philology in Greek and uh, and so on, textual criticism, the relationship of certain readings in the um, the Marcion Gospel with the Western text of the Gospel of Matthew, for example. Well, I have a different interpretation of that that piece. So um, it's a brilliant question, and, and then let me put it this way. I think Dr. Vincent and Jason Badoon and um, uh, uh, Matthias and others have done us a service in reconstructing this text. And it's an important text and it needs to be evaluated in terms of the reception of the Gospel of Luke. But it is not the earliest gospel of the the earliest version of the Gospel of Luke, and it certainly is not a replacement of Q. Now, if I just want, might say one other thing, uh, I cut my teeth not on the Gospels but on studying the apocryphal Acts of Apostles, especially the Acts of Paul and the Acts of Andrew. Now, in those cases, especially the Acts of Andrew we have to reconstruct the text of the uh, original Acts by comparing texts in Greek and Latin and Anglo-Saxon. There you go. Yeah. And um, so we do not have the original text of the Acts of Andrew, but we know that such a thing existed. So we use philological criteria to determine among our evidences which ones are most, most reliable 
and then we can live with the gaps where we don't have sufficient information. So that's what Q scholars have attempted to do. Unfortunately, traditional Q scholars have made two huge mistakes. One is assuming that Luke doesn't know Matthew. Luke knows Matthew. Get over it. The other is that uh, if there was a Q document, Mark knew it. So there's no Mark in independence. Get over it. So in a, another and, book that I'm writing now, is this called, sorry? Doesn't John know Luke and Luke acts also? Um, yes, John knows Luke and Luke acts also. And so yeah. then what do you do with the Marcion gospel in that case? Right. <laughs> so um, there are lots of problems, but I just wanted to say that the um, the reconstruction of Q is not magic. It's not simply wishful thinking. It's the result of serious philological considerations uh, of the Greek text and with uh, using criteria for uh, relative pri uh, priority, uh, that is primitivity, and so on. So to get rid of Q is really... Um, without argumentation, is really sophomoric. It, it needs to be taken much more seriously. And the same thing is true in, in medicine, in curing, science, in curing cancer. I can say that certain procedures of curing cancer don't work, but I'm not a, a physician. I'm not a scientist. I have to rely on those who know these skills and can tell us which procedures are going to be most effective for which pathologies. The same thing's true. We need to have a little more respect to biblical scholars and their skills and their training. And by the way, I am proud of Jason Badoon. Um, and he's a, a wonderful human being, and I consider him a friend and a, uh, a valued colleague. I don't know Dr. Vincent, but I also admire the um, the care in the philology of a colleague. I just happen to disagree um, on these things. Yeah. Here's another question from Jace. Dan Bogle actually asked, my good friend Dan Bogle, I've had him on the show a few times and I will have him on many more times, uh, has asked what about the trial of Socrates and Jesus, but he didn't give us a context. Do you think the Jesus trial is somewhat modeled on the Socratic trial. I think that's only in the Gospel of Luke, but that's a very good observation. Luke is uh, adds that the charges against Jesus is that he's preaching another king, um, th that is uh, the Christ, um, and he's upsetting the the Jewish nation. Well, those are charges very similar to Socrates. He's just, you know, uh, corrupting the youth and he's introducing new deities. <coughs> Only in Luke do you have Jesus forgiving the people who are executing him. In the, Goss, in the, uh, in the Socratic, in the Phaedo by Plato, um, the, uh, Socrates um, forgives the person who's giving him the hemlock. Um, in only in the Gospel of John does Jesus die surrounded by his colleagues. That happens in Socrates in the, the Plato's Phaedo as well. And those are only a few of the parallels. And yeah. so in these cases, Luke is deviating from 
the uh, Markan uh, version, which is then also in Matthew, and you, we can understand why. Yeah. In Matthew, in Mark and Matthew, Jesus is a wimp. His yeah. God has abandoned him. That's he doesn't. He, he dies very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the Christian apologists made they had to deal with uh, objections to it. And yeah. in, um, in Luke, Jesus is courageous. Let yeah. your will be done. Um, into your hands I commend my spirit instead of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He tells the, the, the righteous thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's what Socrates does in the Fido. He tells that his, he tells his comrades that he's expecting a better life and they can too if they uh, pursue righteousness. So uh, the parallels go on. Now I'm not the only person who's seen these things. Okay. So uh, I am an heir to other scholars who have worked on the Socratic pieces, but they certainly are there. Yeah, that's fun stuff. That is fun, fun stuff. Yeah, and I was going to say, John, in Jesus in John is just pure macho. He is in charge. I will die when I decide I will die. I will give up the spirit. I mean, it, it, and his final words are to tell us die. It's finished. It's yeah. It's finished. <laughs> I've, I've got. I've got. I've done what I needed to do. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating the different uh, nuances. It'll be fun to explore some more of that with you in another in another time. Here is JC, our friend again. Also has Doctor McDonald engaged with Russell Gmerkin. Their works fit together well, in my opinion. Are you aware of who he's talking about? Oh, sure, I am. Um, we've actually talked um, uh, through a video at one point. Oh, cool. I wish I were more of a scholar of the reception of the Jewish Bible. Uh -huh. And um, I think his virtue is in reassessing how late the Jewish Bible was and in its composition and how it relates to other literary phenomena in uh, the Greco-Roman world. So I admire his work, but I'm not able to evaluate it. But JC, you're not the only person who has uh, recommended that his um, um, groundbreaking work and mine are similar. Well, that's fun. So you think, so does this uh, gentleman, does he deal with the uh, the Old Testament, with the Hebrew Bible? Is that what you're saying? He, he um, the, the Hebrew the Bible and the Septuagint. And the, the, I'll have the to Greek look at Bible. As much fun as I've had with you, if those fit together well, there's another. Uh, no, he's he, he, he's a very creative uh, scholar, and uh, I know that he's considered on the margins as I am. So I guess I guess we have that in common. But I'm just uh, I would need to see more of his work and argumentation to be able to comment. Well, see, that's one of the that, that's one of the things that just. Um, I'm not going to say frustrates because that's the wrong word. I mean, I'm not out here to try to convert everybody to Dennis McDonald's point of view, but when, when they begin to label and, you know, well, he's on the, he's on the fringe, et cetera. The thing that surprises me, Dennis, is 
everyone in the ancient world. I mean, you did this wonderful, uh, there was an actual, and I know this isn't the only one, but it's one I was able to get, this actual scholarly conference with mimesis and intertextuality in Christianity and uh, in antiquity. And I, I mean, they went through several of the apocryphal works. You had a wonderful chapter in there. Was it you that dealt, dealt with Tobit, or was that uh, Nichols? Yes, that's 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 yeah, my George, work and George yes, Nicholsburg. George. Yes, and George Nicholsburg, and then how had Homer and Greco-Roman age. So the, my point is, it's not like it's a mystery that the most famous uh, material in Jesus's day was obviously going to be the Greeks and Virgil. And, and yet, to point that out, I, I've actually had conversations where people have said, well, I mean, McDonald, he's not mainstream. So what? That almost no, that's, he, that's true. That's a true statement. So anyway, I, I'm saying that by way of saying, yeah, I'm, I've been in the minority my whole life, first as a Mormon apologist, then as a former Mormon atheist, and now as a former Mormon, former atheist agnostic seeker. I mean, I can't get out of the minority position, so it's all good. But uh, it, for me, it it does not encourage uh, discussion, if you will, digging deeper, etc. That's why I so appreciate you coming on this show is because I love the everyone gets their voices. See, in Mormonism, they say you can believe anything you want. Just shut up and don't talk about it here. Well, oh, right? well, then the hell with you. I'm gonna <laughs> YouTube channel. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so oh, that's okay. great. I, I want to go back to this issue of what it means to be marginal. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um you can either say that you're on the outside, or you can say that you're a pioneer, and what you're trying to do is to expand information. And you know that being a pioneer is risky. You're going into foreign country and you're sometimes doing it alone. So I don't mind being an outsider. If being an outsider means I'm trying to be a pioneer and I'm trying to, to carve out some new territory. It's another thing to be shunned by the Academy and not have my books reviewed or, um, or to have them unfairly panned. So um, so it's okay to be an outsider, as long as you're an outsider that's pushing the, the boundaries and helping people expand their territory. Yeah, yeah. Here's another, this is from our beloved dear friend, Pamela Marek. Good to see you again, Pamela. It's good to see all of you in the chat. Thank you for all your questions. This is quite an honorable opportunity for all of us. I'm thrilled. We will have Dennis back several more times, but let's get the questions in. Geoplanet Jane, great point. Ancient oral Kemet, later told by wisdom keepers, 42 tribes, which ties in extinct languages and are, oh, what was that? The, was that? I thought she had a question. She was just, caught, I'm sorry, Pamela, I thought you had a question, as well as anti-Diluvian information. Excellent point. Uh, they're talking about ancient oral history, perhaps. Um, do you think, do you think that this threatens the oral history tradition of the Gospels, having you show that there's the Greek sources? Absolutely. 
That is a huge issue. Now, I like the way that Mark Goodacre talks about it. Mm -hmm. He, He says, of course, Christians talk to each other about Jesus. And we can see this in Paul, that Paul consults with the pillars in Jerusalem. Yes, they're talking about Jesus. So is there oral tradition? Absolutely. And my solution to the synoptic problem includes Papias, the Q plus Papias hypothesis. And Papias says, I'd rather have information from a living source than I would from books, even though he knows um, at least three Gospels and probably a fourth. Uh, We can talk about that some other time. Sure. But this is Papias and Q. There you go. A huge, huge, wonderful, wonderful detailed book. If you if you like getting into nitty gritty, like Dan Vogel has taught us to yeah. do, in Buddhism, that's where it is. That's where the Greek stuff is, and so on. But um, so yes, they talk to each other. The real sure. question is, can we demonstrate that what they talked about? issues in the composition of the Gospels or the Acts of the Apostles. And that's where the rub comes in. So um, scholars often use oral tradition promiscuously to fill in the gaps. Well, we don't have a text for this, but it must have been oral tradition. The same thing happens with multiplying hypothetical sources. So uh, some commentaries will have more than 20 projected sources, not just Q, um, behind the Gospel of Mark, for example. It's got a, 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 you know, a little apocalypse. It has a parable speech. It has a passion narrative. It has this and that. Well, that really, in my view, is scholarly promiscuity. It does not build itself on the evidence of the text. Now, there are certain points where you have to acknowledge that we don't know if a certain parallel could have been from oral tradition or from Jesus or uh, whatever. But for the most part, we have texts to look at, and they are sufficiently sophisticated that we can um, pretty much put oral tradition off to the side and ignore it unless it's absolutely the last case. By the way, the the, the seven criteria that I use for um, mimesis has an eighth. Do you want to go to that? I made all these beautiful slides and now I can't find the criteria. Did I put it in that first one? I did. Dennis, I can't find it. I know I've got it here. Oh, you've got it there. Yeah. That's funny. It's the yellow one. Okay, hold on. We're going to get to this, you guys. That's a wonderful parallel. Okay, here we go. Okay. An author's work must be accessible to the model. So, uh, no, no, that's not quite right. The, The model has to be accessible to the author, right? The author has to have, uh, if you identify a model, potentially the author has to be able to have known it. Uh, 
it needs to be earlier, it needs to be circulated. Is the model popular enough for others to imitate? Yes, in almost all of these cases, you can find parallel or analogous imitations. The next one is density. The more parallels, the stronger case for literary connection. Are the uh, four, are the uh, parallels relatively sequential? Uh, five, is there anything unusual in both texts which the author imitated? That's uh, distinctiveness. Uh, six, ancient authors emulated other texts and it seemed to rival them, making them better, stronger, more lovely. That is um, the interpretability. What would an ancient author gain by imitating one text? And ancient and Byzantine recognitions often suggest imitations of the original composition of Gospels and Acts. That is, especially Byzantine intellectuals saw similarities between the Homeric epics and the Gospels, and they retold Gospel stories by using the same lines that inspire them. But, uh, Carrie, I have an eighth criterion that I'm going oh, really? to use in another book. Good. And I wish I had thought of it earlier, but it actually is implicit in the other ones. Okay. And so the eighth criterion I call salience. Okay. Um, and I think you'll understand this um, quite well. It's actually a simple concept. Ancient authors often imitated more than one book at a time one piece of literature at a time. One can be Jewish, one can be um, Greek, one can be uh, biblical, one can be poetic, and so on. So when, you, when one identifies similarities between two texts, which of the proposed models that may have informed the text is salient? Which is the most important? So um, this, I think, is going to be important in defending my work because people are going to say, again, exa I'll give an example. Um, Jesus sleeps on board ship and wakes up to a storm and calms the sea and so on. There are parallels to the biblical story of Jonah. There are also parallels to the uh, Aeolus episode in the Odyssey, where Odysseus yeah. wakes up and is unable to calm the sea. Yeah. So I would call this an example of eclectic mimesis. That is, it's a creating a, a literary hybrid by using some elements from the Septuagint of Jonah and others from the Odyssey. So which of those can be salient? And I think that's a hard call, but it's one thing to say. So I'm willing to say that it's a mimetic hybrid. That is that the author is borrowing from two. And by the way, the image the ancients use for this is a bee produces the best honey by collecting nectar from various flowers. Right. Oh, I like that. Isn't that's that great? That yeah, is, isn't that great? But there's that? there's also a sexist version that a an artist comes into a uh, a village, and they want to uh, have him create a, an image of uh, a nude Helen for the uh, the, the the place for the city uh, Agora, 
And he says, well, Helen's the most beautiful of all women. I want to see all your young ladies and I'll choose aspects from all of them and uh, and create this uh, this image. But we know that such eclectic mimesis happened. But what I want to do is press it further and to say which of these literary models is the most salient because I'm willing to grant there are multiple models. We talked about it before, the Elijah Elisha stuff that Tom Brody uh, has found. Uh, I don't deny that, but I would in many cases argue that the Homeric pieces are more salient, largely because they are more effective in establishing what the author needs to establish uh, for the Christian community in the Roman Empire. Hey, can I ask you a quick question then that, that because of the way you put that, um, perhaps I, I'm just thinking about the, I'm trying to put myself back in the ancient culture, perhaps the, I, and I know the Jewish scriptures were truly quite important. I mean, the after the Hellenization of the Jews, Alexander the Great's kingdoms split off and then the Old Testament was translated into Greek, et cetera. But that would be one that would be limited more or less and i'm not dogmatic about this to that one culture for salience but the homeric materials it would have been spread all over the mediterranean all the way down into egypt north africa all over into asia minor and beyond all the way up north does that make sense Oh, it's really important. And so uh, it relates actually to the very first criterion. That is salience is related to the accessibility of the model. So yeah. let me give you an example, Carrie. This is this will sure. blow the minds of you and your readers, I think, your, your uh, listeners. In a catalog of literary manuscripts in Egypt, from the year 200, approximately 200 BC to 200 Common Era. We have between 600 and 800 fragments of the Homeric epics. And the problem with the number is that some may have come from the same manuscript and so that, you know, they're fragmentary and so on. So we don't know how many copies, but there are hundreds of copies of Homer. It was used in school. Now, remember, the, the, the Bible and the Septuagint was created th- the 3rd century BCE. Okay. How many fragments do we have of the Bible in Greek in the same catalog? Five. Five as opposed to six or 800. Now, you tell me what texts early Christians are more likely to have had access to? Is it the Septuagint or is it the Homeric epics? Now, yeah. give me a break. Now, um, those those numbers are, and, you know, I can demonstrate what they are. I mean, th- these are catalogs from uh, major museums in the world, and uh, many of them in Egypt. And we know that the Christian church um, was thriving in Egypt at the time when we'd expect certainly more fragments of the Septuagint um, that we have. Now, I'm not up to date necessarily on uh, new manuscript findings in Egypt. And so this is a a catalog that's decades old now. But surely the, no, but but surely the, um, 
the statistics are in in favor of Homer and not in terms of the, the Bible. Well, and Virgil was completely all over the Roman Empire at a minimum, and it covered several continents. As far as well, well, this is how people learn to write. Yeah, yeah Virgil. Vir, yeah, they used Virgil for that purpose. I mean, he basically just expanded Homer beyond all incredibility. Yeah, so I'm glad I I'm glad I brought that up because I mean we all like the Septuagint, at least some of us nut jobs who want to try to get the scholarly side of things, the Greek Old Testament. I have Oh, a, I'm a fan. Yeah. Yeah, I have a Kohlenberger triple column triglot Bible. One column is the Masoretic text, the other column is the Septuagint. And then an, I love that book, man. It's so cool. Kohlenberger was good, but I don't know if he's still alive or not. But hey, let's. Uh, do you guys have any more questions? Let I, I wanted to let me show you this. Uh, I want to. I will read it out loud, and then Dennis. Dennis has basically been elaborating on this, but here's one example in his fabulous work. In pretty much every book he does. Um, we have Odyssey chapters one and two up here on the left and Mark chapter one, verses two through 39. We have the invocation of the muse, the invocation of Isaiah. Athena descends to Telemachus, strengthens his heart. The spirit descends to Jesus as a dove and empowers him. The goddess tells Telemachus, am I pronouncing that right, Dennis? Mm -hmm. Telemachus, Okay. Yep. Telemachus, that he is his father's son. Telemachus was doubting that in the first part of the Odyssey. It's a wonderful story. She ascends flying like a bird, and that causes him to get suspicious. And he says, hey, wait a minute. Uh, she's a god. And in the Mark yep. story, a voice from heaven tells Jesus that he is God's son. Early Christians knew the dove was the mother goddess. And the in some of the early Christian groups, the later Godhead was father, mother, son. It was not a triple male trinity, interestingly enough. Now, Dennis didn't put, that's me adding to Dennis's wonderful. It's just, okay. that's, one, that's one of my favorite subjects is this dove symbol of the ancient goddess because it's ubiquitous everywhere. I was blown away when I discovered it was in early Christianity too. So, And then Telemachus, emboldened by her claims, his father's kingdom. He goes and tells the suitors uh, what side of the road they're supposed to be on, and it just blows them away. And then in Mark, Jesus, after the devil's temptation, claims God's kingdom has arrived. And this was, I wanted to make this print big enough so that we could all read it, but you'll see the parallels aren't exact. And then here's the final two, and these were important. Dennis describes this in his book, uh, Athena acquires a crew and ship for Telemachus. He sails the sea to Pylos to hear news of his father. And in Mark, Jesus calls four fishermen to follow him. He acquires Zebedee's boat to use on the Sea of Galilee. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't capitalize Galilee. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, you're forgiven. Yikes. Telemachus amazes the suitors with his boldness to establish his authority over his own household. And then in Mark, Jesus amazes people with the authority of his teaching. He commands unclean spirits and they obey him. So 
we see the tr truly it makes sense that we see the usage of the Greek stories, but it's not slavish copying. It is a it's like scholarship and art, science and art. They are being artistic with the way they either add to what Jesus is doing to bring forward the amazement or else the authority. And some things they'll leave out or transform from a good to a bad or a negative to a positive. So this is one wonderful example that uh, Dr. McDonald shared with us in his books. And I wanted to show one more. Oh, yeah. Now, now this is a Greek on the left is the Greek. This is actually on a vase. And it's a gorgeous. I bet that vase yeah, is thousands of dollars. I bet it's pricey. No, it, it's it, famous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very famous. Uh, I don't know if that's the exact right scene or not, but I did look it up on Google and that's the one they gave me. So the dove associated with the goddess, both in the Greek epics and early Christianity showing up in the gospels and the Odyssey is surely no accident. It is quite a distinctive parallel. And, and that's my emphasis because one of the things, uh, and I will say this without bias or prejudice at all, one of the really fun parts of exploring your books is when you, and I like all of the, there's some who are only going to have one of the criteria, one of the seven or eight, right? And, and that's good. It's, it's all good. Some of them have two, some of them have three, some of them have four, but my favorite ones are the ones that show the distinctive element the most. I mean, it, there are some parallels that Maybe you can think of an example. I, I can't write off, but it is so distinct that you oh, wow. Well, like this dove, that's pretty distinct. Paul never saw a dove. Uh, Herod never saw the dove. John never saw the dove. Oh, I mean, John the gospel. Only John the Baptist saw the dove. But, so th that's fun stuff. So well, this is, why the, this is why the criterion of distinctiveness is so important. Now, with all of my examples, though, they they all every single one of them qualifies for uh, criteria one and two. They all are accessible to the author, and they all have uh, analogous imitations. So, you know, these are uh, in the wind. Okay. But the distinctive traits. Give me. I'll give you an example. Okay. Odysseus comes home in disguise. His nurse recognizes who he is by washing his feet and recognizing his boyhood scar. Mm -hmm. Her name is Eurycleia. Yeah. Jesus is uh, anointed by a woman um, for his burial. And what she has done will be known far and wide wherever the gospel is preached. Okay. The name Eurycleia means renowned far and wide. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a distinctive trait. What are you going to do with that? Now, here's the kick in the pants. When Byzantine intellectuals read that story, they repeated the wordplay on Eurycleia for the woman who anoints Jesus. So you here you have an ancient recognition now, one of the things that's been frustrating of readers of my work 
is they don't look at the appendices and see that you have analogous imitations sometimes as recognitions that the same story that is that the gospels are imitating have been imitated by um, Byzantine intellectuals. And now, uh, the, the Byzantine, what time era? How much later is the Byzantine? Well, we don't know. We know that some of these were written by the late fourth century, some of them in the ninth centuries, uh, others uh, related to the Gospel of John, the 12th century. But we can say that, um, uh, by the way, many of these texts have never been translated into English or German or French. They appear only in Greek and in esoteric editions. And fortunately, the editions are wonderful. Yeah. But um, they are not known or translated. And they're simply considered oddities of the Byzantine world who are, of intellectuals who are trying to combine classical poetry and the Gospels. No, they're much more important than that, and they deserve the uh, the treatment I'm hoping to give them. Nice, nice. Okay. Um, so are the you say the Greek Byzantine texts, are they uh, available in libraries, bigger libraries, research libraries? Uh, well, bigger libraries, but the, the edition that I know um, probably costs about $350. So, you know. No, no, no. People aren't, and they're not widely available. You almost have to um, uh, belong to the series. Um, but the editions are really beautiful. And um, I guess we need to end soon. But I want to say, Carrie, to your, your viewers, um, don't be threatened by this. Be encouraged to use your imagination and the creativity and understand this is literature of communities that are trying to make sense of our messy world. But yeah. once you've used your imagination, don't be afraid of plunging into Greek and Latin and philology in classical literature, because it really is rewarding in its own. On the other hand, we have crises in the globe of global warming, of racism and sexism and poverty and income disparity and so on. We got to be working on those things. So consider this a hobby that inspires you to do justice. Nice. That, that's, that's very well said. I, I can't, boy, that's a good note to end on. You guys have any other questions you want to ask Dr. McDonald? Um, we will be getting together again uh, later. Um, we, we do have to, we're going into the holiday season, but Dennis has agreed to come on many more times. I'm definitely going to try to have him on when his new book comes out pretty quick uh, after it comes out. I'm going to try like crazy to let him show us the book and maybe some of his favorite parts of it. Hopefully they haven't misprinted anything or goofed up. <laughs> That's up my problem. That's, uh, That's not their problem. It's my problem. <laughs> so uh, what, a, what a fun night. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. I oh, thank do you. appreciate your time. And uh, you guys, we will, we will be back tomorrow night. I'm going to have Barry Richards. He's going to be discussing his travels 
with the uh, Book of Mormon lands, archaeology, and he's been all over the world. He's got uh, information from the Mayan people themselves down in Mesoamerica. He's got information from the modern-day uh, Native Americans up in the Heartland model in Ohio and Iowa, and, and uh, he will be discussing his He's, he's in his 80s. He has had a lifetime of learning, and it's going to be a great show to figure out where are we at on that score. So in the meantime, remember, you guys, be good, do well, have fun, work hard, don't stay up late. But if you do, have fun legally, legally, and I will see you in the next Backyard Professor videos. Thanks again, Dennis. We'll see you guys tomorrow night. Oh, I was going to, yeah, I was going to put the ending on. I forgot. Oh, well.